Well, good morning. Welcome to Bridgewater. I'm super glad that you're here today. Uh, I feel like after that, I don't even really need to preach. I feel like that's, that's pretty awesome, and we can just go home with that. Um, well, I, uh, I want to clear something up real quick. I know it can be confusing for some of you. Uh, I'm not Matt. Um, I know it's confusing. We're about the same height and build, um, similar hair color. Um, I know my beard is as cool as his, and my voice is as deep as his. Um, so I just want to make sure that's clear. Uh, my name's David. I'll stop making fun of myself now. Um, but uh, I get to bring the word this morning. And, and today we're going to be kicking off uh, a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's a letter uh, that was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the city of Corinth. And um, he, p- the Apostle Paul was uh, really this really prominent missionary in the first century. And he wrote a lot of the New Testament that we read, and including this book here in 1 Corinthians. And Paul is writing this letter to to, to deal with a church that, that he actually planted right there in Corinth that's really, it's, it's a pretty messed up church. A lot of this letter is him writing to rebuke them for things in their lives that are not right and to kind of set them back on course. And so for us today, this letter can serve as, as kind of a, a helpful tool to help us see maybe where we could have gotten off track. The title of our series and for our sermon this morning is A Messed Up Church blessed by God. We're going to be talking about some real issues in the church at Corinth and really some issues in our life today that, were, that are addressed in this letter that was written about 2,000 years ago. And Matt encouraged you last week that if you are disillusioned with church or maybe you have a friend that is, that this would be a good series for you to be here for. If you've been maybe nervous about attending church because you feel like maybe you're just too messed up, then let me clear the air right now and tell you that you're among some really good company because all of us are messed up. If the requirement to be a part of church was to not have any mess in our lives, um, then every church in the world would be empty. All of us have some mess. If you've been waiting maybe for somebody in the church to admit that we don't always get it right, then you've found the right place to be. If you've been hoping that maybe somebody would call Christians to account for their judgmental attitudes and for the mess that they try to justify in their life or even try to cover up in their life, and I suggest you dial in for this series. If you've been hurt by the church or by Christians in the past and you feel like, maybe you feel like Christians are just a bunch of judgmental jerks, then I would encourage you to be here for the next five weeks as we talk about what the church should be, what the the Bible calls the church to be. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, then this series can serve kind of like a a checkup at the doctor, giving you clarity on, on how you're doing and where you're at. The good news for you and for me is that no matter how messed up we are, no matter what we walked in here with, there's grace to be found at the cross. And that's what we're going to be talking about in this series and what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, um, we would be uh, happy to give you one. We'd love to give you one. You could stop by our Welcome Center. And over the next five weeks as we dive into this series, we encourage you to bring your Bible and maybe a notebook and a pen as as we look at this, this book that is so helpful. And before we get into the text, I want to walk you through just a a couple quick things about um, what is true of the city of Corinth um, so that we have a better understanding of who is this that Paul is writing to? Who is he talking to? Who are the people in Corinth? And how that's going to impact what we're going to read here in this book. 
Corinth was located on a high mountain with a, a fresh water supply on top, and so that really made it an ideal place uh, for defense. Um, that was a very hard city to attack, and so that was a place, that'd be a place where anyone would want to live. And its location also made it prosperous because of where it was located. Um, travel uh, was, or people were constantly going through there to get to re- basically anywhere in the world. It was kind of like a port city, if you will. Uh, almost think of it like New York City. And so that made it a rather prosperous and, and thriving place. Um, a little bit like how there's some businesses right here in Halstead and Great Bend that can do a lot better because 81 goes right through town, right? It's a little bit like, like that. Corinth was a center for trade and for manufacturing. Since you could ship anything to anywhere and you were, people were going from there to everywhere, it was really a, a center of manufacturing and of people traveling. And finally, Corinth was also a destination for religious pilgrims. It had a lot of really important religious sites. It had the, the Temple of Apollo. Uh, it also had the Temple of Aphrodite, who was known as the goddess of sex. And the, the temple uh, had up to, that temple had up to a thousand prostitutes and everyone from around the world really uh, would go to that temple to worship. And you can probably guess what that worship involved. This was an incredibly significant place, but even really more, it was an immoral place. I mean, think of this as the original sin city. That was the city of Corinth. We first read about the church at Corinth in Acts chapter 18, and I would encourage you uh, this week to go read Acts chapter 18 and, and see the story of when Paul goes there, and he, he founds this church, he plants this church. It'll give you a lot of insight into what we're going to read here. And as we kick off our series today, we're going to be talking about how we can engage with the mess in, in our church, in our lives, in our, in our own life, in the lives of others. How, how are we supposed to, to deal with that mess that's there? If we're honest enough to admit that there's some, some mess there, how do we engage in that mess well? Church at Corinth had some big problems that Paul is going to work to set, th- set straight in this letter. But before he does that, he lays a foundation for the book that we need to understand in order to track with them. So let's dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. So Paul calls himself an apostle right off the bat, probably to point out that he is somebody who has some authority. See, he's about to call them to account, starting in verse 10, for some things that they have in their life. And he wants to point out that this is not just some random guy writing a letter. This is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a special messenger of Jesus Christ who was chosen by the will of God. This is not just some guy. This is the apostle Paul. Let's keep reading in verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is addressing this church there in Corinth, and he says, says two things that are really foundational for this entire book. They, they almost sound similar, but there's a little bit of nuance that we need to make sure we understand if we're going to track with him as we read through this book. First, he says that they are sanctified. They are sanctified, which means to be declared holy. This is not something that they have done. This is something that they have received. It's not that they were good enough to be holy. It's that they were declared holy by God because they were followers of Jesus. And what that means is they placed their faith in him. And when they did that, Jesus' holy account was placed onto them. It's not that they were good enough. It's that they were declared 
holy. Another way to say that is that they are set apart in position. They're set apart in position. God no longer looks at them in their sin. He now looks at them through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, secondly, he goes on to say that they are called to be his holy people. And so secondly, they're called to be holy, meaning that God is calling them to live differently than the world around them. Another way to say that is is that they are to be set apart in practice. They're to live differently. To live differently. And so here's what Paul is saying with this introduction. He's telling the Christians in Corinth to live out in practice the position they have already been given in Christ. He's saying that you are holy because of the righteousness of Jesus has been placed on you. You are holy, but now you need to actually live like that. Your life needs to reflect the fact that you are declared holy. You need to live in practice your position in Christ. And this dynamic of being set apart by God in position and being called to reflect that in our practice, that wasn't just true of the Corinthian church. That's true of anybody who calls Jesus their Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus here today, that is something God calls all of us to. It's not just that the Corinthians who were called to that. It was us too. Paul is gonna spend the, the majority of this book calling the Corinthians to task on how their position was not, or excuse me, their practice was not matching their position. They were not living holy. They've been declared holy, but they were not living like it. That's, he's gonna spend the majority of his book calling out those things. And the big, the big churchy word for that, that process of their, 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 how they live becoming in line with who they are, them living holy because they have been declared holy, that process uh, is, what we called sancti- is what we call sanctification. And that's what we see Paul use that word right here in our opening verses. Then in verses four through nine, Paul is gonna do what many people did in the first century. He's he's gonna follow a custom that they used in letters to give a a section of thanksgiving, as he often does in his letter. Uh, But this is a a pretty messed up church that he is writing to. As we've been saying, this this is a messed up church, but it's probably far more messed up than you realize. You might be surprised to find what we're gonna read here. You might be surprised to find that that's even in the Bible. And so I wanna run through just a quick overview of some of, the, some of the issues that Paul is going to address here in this letter. First, Paul is gonna address controversies in the church. This church was full of infighting. They had leaders who were trying to create factions around themselves, and, and the people in those factions were, were fighting each other, like I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, and they, they, were, they were fighting with each other within the church. They were even trying to say that Paul wasn't a legitimate leader. Chapter five, we see this is a church that's full of immorality, so much so that there's a guy who's having sex with his stepmom, which is gross enough by itself, but what Paul is really concerned with is the fact that the church is totally okay with that. This is something that the culture around them would say, okay, that's wrong, that's not cool, but the church is, is actually proud of how open and affirming they are of this man. Seems from what we read in chapter six that there may have even been people in the church who were visiting that temple of Aphrodite to be with those prostitutes. It seemed, as we said, everyone in the, the, that city was, was doing that, and you would think the church would be an exception to that, but it doesn't seem like it. After that, Paul is going to address the Corinthian Christians who are suing each other. They were getting along to the point where they were actually taking each other to court over things. And that caused the non-Christians around them to wonder, why, why would I even want to follow Jesus if these Jesus followers can't even get along with each other? 
church also had problems around communion. The rich were getting there earlier than everyone else and, and getting drunk, and the poor came later, and they were left with no food, and they had to go hungry. And then Paul's gonna spend three chapters correcting their worship services because they are so out of control. And then finally, near the end of the book, there's some in the church who didn't even believe in the resurrection. I mean, this is a seriously messed up church. There's so much mess that if I was the Apostle Paul trying to write to correct this church, I wouldn't even know where to start. And, and by the way, I think that's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. It doesn't sugarcoat things. It doesn't hide things. It's brutally honest about the mess in people's life, even the mess in the life of people who should know better. It's one of the reasons I love following Jesus. One of the reasons I love Christianity is that we don't have to hide. We don't have to sugarcoat. We don't have to cover up that mess. The Bible's brutally honest. And yet, despite all the mess in the church at Corinth, despite everything that we just read, here's what Paul says about this church in verse four. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. See what Paul did there? He thanks God for God. There was not really much he wanted to thank God for about the Corinthian church. Usually in his letters in the beginning there, that's what he does. He spends time thanking the church for their love, for their dedication, for their support of him, for uh, different things that they're doing. Usually he spends some time doing that in the beginning of his letters, but there's not really much he can praise here in the church in Corinth, but he can thank God for his grace. You can thank God that despite all the mess that was going on in this church, they were recipients of God's grace. And then next, Paul is going to go on to, to name three resources that the Corinthians had that they had received by grace. He thanks God for his grace, and then he says, okay, here's three things that are true of your life as a result of that. And they're true of our lives, too, if we're followers of Jesus. And we see that first one in verses 5 through 7. For in him you've been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about, um, about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And so first we see that they had been given gifts by the Holy Spirit. They had Holy Spirit gifts. Paul specifically mentions speech and knowledge to the, the many gifts that they had, but he even says that they, they are not lacking in any gift. There's nothing that they don't have. Despite the fact that they were not living as they should, God in his grace, he gave them gifts of the Spirit that would, that would help them as they served the church. And these signs of the Spirit were some of the, maybe some of the only confirmation that they were even followers of Jesus, because again, their life wasn't really backing that up very much. The second resource we see is in verses seven through eight. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second resource given to us by grace is God's security. You can't thank God for the, the Corinthians' practice, and so he has to thank God for their position, that they are firm in Christ and nothing's gonna take him out of his hand. He says that they're gonna stand before God blameless, but doesn't something just seem a little bit wrong with that? I mean, we just, we just led, read their list of sin, right? Like, how can they stand before God blameless? 
Well, they're going to stand before God blameless the same way anyone who is a follower of Jesus will stand before God blameless. Because it doesn't matter really as much what we have done. We don't stand before God and say, here's my good works, and here's the things that I've done, and here's how many times I went to church, and here's how many times I did my devotions. If we're never going to stand before God with those things. The only way we're going to have any leg to stand on before God is because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account. We have been declared holy. So that's how they're gonna be able to be declared blameless on the day of Jesus Christ. You're never gonna stand before God and say, look at the good things I did. You're gonna stand before God and say, thank you so much for the things that Jesus did that have been credited to my account. Well, the third resource of grace can be kind of hard to swallow, again, when when you know the reality of who the Corinthians were. We find that here in verse nine. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the third resource they were given is Christ's friendship. They had fellowship with Jesus. And I don't know about you, but it kind of almost rubs me the wrong way that these guys, these, again, that list of sin, these guys get friendship with Christ. Like, we're not, a, we're not a perfect church. I hope we, we know that. We've got some work uh, some works we need to do. We've got some room to grow. But, I mean, compare us to Corinth, and I feel like we look okay. Like, we're not over here saying prostitution. What's the big deal? Communion. Let's get wasted. It's fine. At least, I hope we're not, right? Like, I hope we're not doing those things, right? That was what was going on at the church in Corinth. Their practice was not matching their position. And that's a problem that Paul is going to address. But they as messed up as they were, and us, as messed up as we are, we get Christ's friendship. And you see, that's what's so radical about grace. That's what's so crazy about grace is that it is freely given to those who don't deserve it and who could never earn it. The same way they didn't earn it, I didn't earn it, and you didn't earn it. But I think sometimes, I think sometimes we can lose sight of that in church. I think we can lose sight of that. There's this dangerous tendency that can happen the longer we experience God's grace that I think we all need to look out for. You see, the longer we experience God's grace, the more we tend to think that we earned it. The longer we've experienced God's grace, the more we tend to think that we earned it. We probably wouldn't admit it out loud, and we probably wouldn't even realize that's what's going on in our mind, but we start to live, and we start to act, and we start to think like somehow we earned the grace that we have been given. Like our good behavior and not cussing or drinking or sleeping around is earning us favor before God. And here's how I think we can know if that is happening, if we're starting to to think that we have earned it. I think there's two things that start to show up in our lives if that's what's going on. Spiritual pride tends to grow and spiritual harshness tends to show. Spiritual pride tends to grow and spiritual harshness tends to grow. If we aren't careful, we can start to grow prideful of where we are at in our relationship with God. We can look in our lives and see the results of grace, see that we are not like who we were before we came to know Jesus, and we can start to think that we are responsible for those things and forget that those are all a result of grace, and if it wasn't for the grace of God, none of those things would be true. I think at times we can become entitled and and demanding of God and of others. We can even think the church is there purely to serve our needs and that God owes us something because of how righteous we are. 
We can go prideful. And then that pride will lead us to be harsh with others who are not living like we are or at least not living like we think that they ought to. We can see ourselves as above them. We can find ourselves saying things like, how could they even do that? I would never sin that way. Maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, but those are the things that maybe run through our minds. We can even start to be blind to our own sin and think that we don't have any, or at least our sin isn't as bad as their sin. Like that looks so much worse than than what I have. And I, I know I've seen this in my own life. I have to repent of my prideful thoughts and my harsh actions and thoughts towards others far more often than I would like to admit to you. I can remember a time when I was in high school and college and I was really judgmental about another church in town. You see, I thought my church was better. I thought we were doing things the right way and that they were compromising because they were growing really fast. That was the kind of judgmental and and harsh attitude that I had towards this other church that was doing some really great things. And thankfully, God brought me to a place where I went to a conference and uh, some, of their, some of the leaders from that church were presenting some of the different things that they were doing. And God just helped me realize that there were some really awesome people who loved God and who loved people and who loved the gospel and who were doing some amazing things. And I just had to break down and repent, realize that my attitude was so, so wrong. I actually ended up uh, emailing their lead pastor and just saying, dude, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. You didn't even know this, but <laughs> I have had these thoughts towards you and towards your church. Please forgive me. If we aren't careful, we can lose sight of the grace that was extended to us. We can become prideful and we can become harsh. And here's the thing about pride. God hates it. God hates pride. First Peter 5.5 5 says that God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want God opposing me. I'm not convinced that there's a, a scale in heaven of like how bad a sin is, but if there is one, I think pride's either at the top or right near the top. God, all throughout the Bible, is condemning pride, and here's why I think God takes pride so incredibly seriously. Pride goes directly against the message of the gospel. It goes directly against the message of the gospel. Pride says, I am good enough. Gospel says, you are not good enough. Pride says, I don't need help. Gospel says, you desperately need help. Pride says, I'm a pretty good person. The gospel says, not only are you not a good person, but you are so lost in your sin, you can't even find a way out without help. So if we find ourselves with spiritual pride, we need to quickly repent and come back to the message of the gospel. And harshness, man, that is the opposite of what the Bible says should be a part of our life as followers of Jesus. I mean, if we follow Jesus he was known for his kindness. He was known for his, his grace. Galatians 6, which talks about the, the fruits or the results of the Spirit, says that we should have love, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, just to, to name a few, and all of those speak directly against harshness. Reality is, apart from the transforming work of God's grace in your life and in my life, we are all capable of that sin that we think we are better than. We're all capable of that sin that we might even judge other people for. If God hadn't reached into our lives and pulled us out of our sin, all of us could be there. Every single one of us. We're not above it. Anything that's good in our lives is a direct result of God's grace toward us. So if we understand the grace that we've been shown, we're not gonna go prideful and harsh. We're gonna grow humble and kind 
for showing spiritual pride and spiritual harshness in our lives, we're showing that we have not let grace have its full effect in our lives. Because if we've truly experienced God's grace, it is going to change us. You see, the thing about grace is God's grace is never earned, but it is always effective. It is never earned. We could never do enough to somehow get grace, but it is always, 100% of the time, effective. Because of grace, our practice will begin to match our position. Not perfectly, not right away, but over time, we're gonna become more and more like Jesus. If I'm truly a follower of Jesus, then I'm gonna be moving in the direction of becoming more like him. And one of the things that means is moving away from pride and harshness and towards kindness and humility. It's not pray a prayer and live however I want. It's a continual journey in my life of becoming more and more like him. Let's imagine you want to grow some oranges. You want an orange tree. And so you go to the store and you buy some orange seeds. On the package it says orange seeds and you go and you plant those and you water it and over time this, this tree starts growing. And as you're looking at it, you're like, you know, that, that kind of looks like an apple tree. I don't know my trees that well, but that kind of looks like an apple tree to me. And then as some fruit starts to grow on it, you're like, you know, that kind of looks like an apple. I think that might be an apple. But again, the package said orange seeds, so you're, okay, it's an orange tree. It said, the package said it, so it's got to be an orange tree, right? And then so finally, you, you have this tree that's got all this fruit on it, and you go over and you look at one, and you say, okay, this looks a lot like an apple, and you go ahead and take a bite of it, and it tastes a lot like an apple. What would all of you be saying right now? This is an apple tree, right? Like if it looks like an apple tree, if it tastes like an apple, this is an apple tree. It doesn't matter what the package said. It doesn't matter if it said it was an orange tree. It's an apple tree. We know what a tree is by its fruits. And in the same way, someone can claim to be a follower of Christ, but if their life doesn't show any fruit of that, it says something. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. So while the Christian is given the the position of holiness, if our lives don't match that in practice, we need to ask why. We need to look at the fruit in our lives and say, okay, what is this telling me about what I am, about who I am, if I'm actually a follower of Jesus? We shouldn't demand perfection of ourselves. Jesus already achieved that for us, right? We're not trying to do that. But we should be becoming more like him. We should be seeing the results of grace in our lives. Maybe you're here today and You've experienced Christians who are harsh and who are prideful. Fortunately, church doesn't have a, a great track record in that area. We can at times expect people who are not even followers of Jesus to behave like they are. Or we can expect people who have just become a follower of Jesus to all of a sudden act like this mature Christian, like they've got everything together. It doesn't make sense, but I've seen it time and time again. I've seen it in my own heart. Maybe that's exactly how you've been hurt by church, how you've been hurt by Christians. Maybe you dared to show up at a church with some sin still a part of your life, and you were judged there. People were harsh towards you. People were prideful around you. Maybe all the Christians you've ever even known were harsh and judgmental, and and if that's you, please hear me when I say, that is not what God calls the church to be. That is not who Jesus is, and so that is not what any follower of Jesus should look like. That should not be true of us. God calls us to be instruments of his grace, not not agents of condemnation. I hope that this church is a place where you are welcomed, you're loved, where you experience the grace of Jesus, that no matter where you came from, no matter where I came from, that we can we can be a part, we can realize that God, God loves us. That's willing to show us his 
grace. And so if you've had a bad church experience like that, I'd ask you to talk with someone. Talk with me, talk with Matt, maybe a small group leader. A small group would be a great place for you to maybe be able to process that pain. Um, We wanna be here for you. See, Christians are messed up people who are blessed by God. If we're honest, we're gonna admit that there's still some mess in our lives because we are not fully like Jesus yet, but God has chosen to give us his grace and that is what truly makes the difference. It's the grace of God. It's not what we do. It's the grace of God. So here's two things I want you to walk away with today as you think about how to interact with the mess in your own life and maybe the mess even in other people's lives. First, embrace God's grace in you. Embrace God's grace in you. Despite all that was going on in the church at Corinth, despite all of that sin, Paul was able to embrace the grace of God in them. And so I'm gonna ask you that if you can do the same in your own life. Can you choose to focus on the fact that God has extended his grace toward you? You could never earn it, you could never deserve it, but God has chosen to give you his grace. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think what happens is sometimes we can, when we first come to Christ, we're blown away by, by, by how huge our sin is, but the fact that God's grace is even greater than that, and he could forgive a sinner like me, like we're blown away by that fact. But then over time, we can, it just becomes old hat. Over time, we just, we lose our amazement. Instead of growing in our amazement of grace, we can start to take it for granted. We can start to think that maybe we even earned some of that forgiveness, and maybe we're actually a better person than we, than we thought we were. Over time, we can lose sight of how amazing God's grace is. is. And I, I think somebody in my life who is just such a great example of that is my mom. Um, you, most of you here, probably none of you, except for Frank, I don't know if he's still here. Um, Frank Mulligan happens to know my mom, but most of you probably don't know my mom, but she is just this amazing lady who is constantly amazed by the grace of God in her life. I don't think she has one time in her life sat through any sort of church service, sat through any sort of worship music. I don't think she's ever read her Bible without just breaking down and crying because re- she realizes that she is a sinner, but God loves her anyway. She has over the years, time and time again, shown me what it means to embrace the grace of God in your life, to remember that you didn't deserve it, you you didn't earn the things that are true in your life. She's been such an encouraging example to me in that, and I pray that we can follow that. There ever comes a day where you're, you're not blown away by your sinfulness, not somebody else's, but your sinfulness and God's forgiveness of that sin then be warned that that you may have lost your grip on God's grace. There ever comes a day when we aren't moved by the message of the gospel. There ever comes a day where our heart isn't stirred by the truth of the song that we sing and the passage of scripture that we read. There ever comes a day when we quietly begin to think to ourselves that we're a pretty good person and God is lucky to have us on his side. There ever comes a day where we think in the recesses of our mind that we have somehow earned our forgiveness of our sins. There ever comes a day where we find ourselves prideful and harsh, then we've lost our grip on God's grace. We've forgotten that we have been declared holy based on nothing that we did, that it was the righteousness of Jesus that was placed onto us. We didn't earn that, we didn't deserve that. It's not because of the good things we did. It was all because of the grace of Jesus. Some of the harshest words in the Bible are reserved for those who think they are too good for grace. 
So let's not be those people. Let's embrace God's grace in us instead of turning our noses at it as if we're better than that. Well, secondly, we need to celebrate God's grace in others. We need to celebrate God's grace in others. I pray that you never, ever grow tired of these carnations that we get to have on stage. I pray that you're never tired of hearing those stories of salvation that we share with you. I pray that you are never tired when we get to see somebody say, I am a follower of Jesus and I'm gonna go public with that. I want the entire world to know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I pray that never grows old. I pray that's something that we're continually refreshed and, and amazed and get to celebrate what God is doing in others' lives. I hope that we're, we learn from the negative example of the Old Testament prophet Jonah. He was a guy who saw God show incredible grace to the people of Nineveh, but instead of celebrating that, he got mad at God. He wanted God to destroy them. He didn't want God to show them grace. He showed a lot of that spiritual pride and harshness that we were talking about. See, here's the thing about spiritual pride and harshness. When you become prideful and harsh, not only do you think you don't need grace, but you begin to think that others don't deserve it. You begin to think that they are just too far gone. You begin to think that you're better than needing grace and other people don't deserve it. I think sometimes we can look around at the sinful people around us and conclude that they are worse than us, that our sin is somehow better or somehow justified. And that shows us that we have lost our grip on grace. We've forgotten that grace is unearned favor. None of us deserve it. That's the whole point of grace. None of us earned it. None of us could have deserved it. I've heard Christians say that we shouldn't be so focused on grace that we let people get away with sin. Like there seems to be almost this, this fear that if we talk about grace all of the time, then, then people are gonna just run away with their sin and use it as an excuse for sin. But if your understanding of grace doesn't make you wonder if people are gonna abuse it, then it's probably not grace. You're probably not understanding how free grace is if you're not wondering to yourself, man, is someone going to abuse that grace? But look, you and I don't need to protect God and we don't need to protect his grace. God hasn't called us to be the morality police that go around and make sure that nobody is abusing the grace of God. He's bigger than us, he knows what he's doing. He can handle that himself. If you're thinking to yourself, but won't people take advantage of that and continue in sin? Yeah, they might. But God can take care of that. And that is what is so amazing about grace is that it never runs out. It never comes to a point where you have gotten past the grace of God. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, the grace of God is always available to you. You can't outrun it. You can't outsin it. It is always right there for you. We're gonna talk next week about how Grace doesn't excuse sin because Paul is gonna go after some of those areas of sin in the Corinthian church. But undergirding all of that discussion of of calling to them account is the incredible grace of God that was available to them in their sin and it's still available for you and I today. No matter who you are, no matter where you've come from, no matter what you have done, the grace of God is waiting for you. God is waiting with open arms. He wants to, he wants to make you a part of his family. God's grace is open to you. So my challenge for you this week is to keep an eye out for that spiritual pride and that spiritual harshness. 
and just sit in and soak in and be amazed at and celebrate the amazing grace of God that has been shown to you and has been shown to me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. Without it, we are without hope. Without it, we have no course of action. Without it, we have no chance of forgiveness of sin. Without it, we have no way to ever come back to you. Without it, we are lost in our sin. So Father, we thank you for your grace that you have showed to people like us, messed up people who don't always get it right. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not yet experienced the grace of God, experienced the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that today would be the day that you break down the hard walls of their heart that are, that, are, that are resisting what you are doing, and today you'd help them to see that no matter who they are and what they've done, no matter what they've come from, no matter what sins they have committed, there is grace for them right where they are. They don't need to do anything to earn it. They don't have to try and work up enough righteousness in order to deserve it. There's grace already there for them. And Father, for all of us who have, are followers of you and have maybe grown stale, maybe even grown prideful, maybe even grown harsh, I pray that you would help us to see a new today, your grace. That we'd be reminded that apart from you, we're lost. That we'd be reminded of, of how you radically changed our lives and had nothing to do with us. It was all your grace. Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus who makes all of that possible. In his name we pray, amen.